0: Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast, with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Dr. Richard Resnick is a general surgeon and world-renowned surgical educator. He is currently the Health Sciences Dean at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. In this episode recorded May 8th, 2020, we discussed Dr. Resnick's career, how he got his career in medical education started, and of course, all about competency-based medical education. Check out our show notes for links to Dr. Resnick's papers.
0: Well, thank you very much for uh, being on our on our podcast, Cold Steel, Doctor Resnick. It's uh, it's an absolute pleasure, and we know as as uh, as busy as you are, it's a, it's a real honor to, to have you on the on the uh, on the show. Everyone's very excited about you you being here. Um, for, for those folks who maybe don't know you intimately or, or know you well, um, I think we all know you for sure. But we were curious: where did you grow up, um, and then what interested you in medicine, and, and then what was your training pathway? How did that look?
2: Sure. Well, it's uh, nice to chat with you, Chad, and thank you for having me on your podcast and uh, congratulations on such a successful endeavor. Um well medicine for me started a long time ago um uh back in the 70s um so that's before all your listeners were born i think <laughs> uh the uh, i was I'm a native montrealer and uh, grew up uh, uh and went to McGill um for I was I think the very first year of Sejap. Um so actually they didn't have Sageps uh, in Montreal at the time. Well, they, they didn't have enough of them, so McGill and other universities became the SEGEPs in the initial, uh, initial phase of that, uh, that alteration in post-secondary education. So I actually went to McGill and uh spent 2 years in in uh what they called uh, you know sort of pre collegial studies and then they had a special program at the time uh um for uh an early entry uh program um it was you know, sort of a pre-med uh, uh accelerated route not dissimilar to the q arms program that we've developed here at queens uh and um so uh I applied almost on a whim to be honest uh uh because I was an anthropology major at the time, not sure why, but wow. I was and uh anyhow, one thing led to another, and I got in and of course, once you make your mother happy you can't uh you can't change tactics and uh so <laughs> uh so um So I went into med school at McGill. uh, The program was a year preparatory and then four years medicine. Uh, So I did seven years at McGill um, getting my medical degree, uh, firmly convinced I was going to be a psychiatrist for uh, uh, at least the first three years of medical school uh, Uh, until uh, fate would have it, uh, as you would understand, uh, when I did uh, an appendectomy as a a uh, fourth-year medical student at the Royal Vic uh, at three o'clock in the morning, and uh, uh, decided that uh, uh, that was uh, a lot of fun and uh, and instant gratification, and uh, changed directions towards surgery. How did the Toronto part of your of your career come to be? So um uh after McGill um I signed my match form uh November 1976 uh and put uh, uh Toronto hospitals as my I think first second and third choice uh um and part of it was you know being young having lived my whole life in Montreal I wanted to get out and you know see another environment but also part of it was the politics in Quebec uh which at the time were um um quite difficult uh, November, November 1976 the uh, Parti Quebecois came into power uh and uh I was quite concerned that this might not be the best place uh uh For me to start my career and um and so that was another motivation to go to toronto i uh uh i uh, applied for i wasn't quite sure hundred percent sure i wanted to do surgery i wanted to do an internship at the time you could sort of stylize there was something called a mixed uh, internship with you know half one specialty, half another, and that's what I wanted to do uh half medicine half surgery, and kind of see where I wanted to go from there uh and uh Bob Stone, who was the a very young Chief of surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital at the time said, You can do whatever you want as long as you come here. Um, So, uh, and so he signed me up. I actually became a straight, what was called a straight surgical intern. And I actually did six months medicine, six months surgery, because that's what we had bargained for, and then decided to uh, apply to the uh, uh, surgical program in Toronto.
1: One of the amazing achievements that you've had is actually becoming the the dean uh, of the faculty of medicine at Queens, and very, very few surgeons actually get to that position. There are a few notable exceptions, like Walter C. McKenzie in the West. What was that? What has that experience been like being the dean at Queens, and what made you interested in that position?
2: Yeah. Well I so so you're you're quite right it's uh, it's uh, been a as I now i am on my last uh, my wife uh, tells me 57 days uh um, uh it's uh it's a, it's an appropriate time to to reflect it's been a, an incredible experience to uh lead a faculty uh in our case that includes a school of nursing a school of rehab and a school of medicine um and uh it's been a terrific experience uh, but I guess winding back the clock, the motivation to it, uh, as you might know, I decided, uh, long ago back in the, uh, uh, early 80s to, uh, take a bit of a gamble on my academic route and focus on education as a, uh, an academic uh, area of scholarship, um, and that led
0: to, to many
2: things, uh, but including a, uh, uh, an educational being involved in an educational research center, and then a chair of a department. Um, and I guess, uh, uh, I guess, after five or six years as chair of surgery in Toronto, I had. Uh, uh well actually even before I had been approached about being a dean uh of another medical school uh and that got me thinking about that pathway um and uh those opportunities uh um I guess came up a couple of times over the course of my job as chair of surgery in Toronto and uh I thought it'd be terrific uh to you know the the job as uh chair of surgery was amazing, uh but uh to just then take another step and expand uh expand my scope of activities. Uh and I guess the one thing that's typified the dean's job is no two days are alike. And the variety of problems and issues that you deal with are quite uh, uh, expansive. And so um, so it's been terrific. And uh, I guess I've been gearing up to do something like that with my focus on education for so long that it became sort of a natural evolution for me.
0: It's its interesting, Dr. Resnick, being in Alberta right now with with our government change and the cuts that have come. and. You know, I, I I certainly talk to and and see Dr. Metting's uh, our, our dean here at the University of Calgary, and some of the uh, you know I'm I'm sure we perceive about two percent of the challenges that he's experiencing on a daily basis right now. But you know, so certainly recognizing things can be hard. But what are some of the absolute best parts of 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 your deanship job?
2: Yeah, so. So you're quite right. Things are, things are tough and there's lots of challenges, but you're, but you're equally right that there's uh, a lot of benefits. So by far and away, it's an easy question to answer. By far and away, uh, the most exciting thing about being a dean is being engaged with our student body. Um, uh, certainly I, when I give talks at Queen's or, or elsewhere and talk about all of our, the, uh, the great things that I think we have and do, our biggest asset by far and away is our students um and being re-engaged with uh medical students cuz uh, uh like most surgeons although I taught some medical students my primary focus was on resident education uh being more more involved with the students uh in in different ways though uh has been a real treasure um um uh, the, the the luxury that we have in the medical profession to really get the best and the brightest uh applying to medicine is uh, is is quite exceptional at queens we have uh for whatever reason it's become a very very popular school and we choose our 100 students from over 5000 applicants so uh and each and every one of them is interesting uh, creative, uh, talented. Um, one of the things, uh, that has been a treasure for us is my wife and I have had the students over for dinner, uh, all, all thousand of them, wow. uh, over 10 years uh, in smallish groups of 15 or so. Uh, and so we get the chance to, to chat with them a bit and, uh, at least break bread and also break open the wine as well. And, uh, and it's been, it's been such a, you know, such a treat. And there's, are such, such great students and, uh, and, and are going to make such great doctors. So, um, so I'd say that's been the single biggest uh, pleasure of, uh, of the job, although there are many
0: others. I can only imagine how, what that experience is like for the medical students. you know, I've never heard, I didn't know you were doing that. And I've never heard of, of any, any Dean doing that. That must be remarkable from their point of view.
2: But you know there is a bit of a tradition to the uh, at Queens, although huh. we didn't know that when we. So when I got the job as dean, uh, I was in my eighth year as chair of surgery in Toronto. My wife innocently said to me, "Well, how are you going to stay connected to the students?" And I said, "Well, you know, what, maybe I'll do a little bit of teaching," uh, which I a- actually ended up doing uh, just a little bit, uh, some surgical skills uh, in the skills lab, and uh, uh, but she said, "I so," I told. Her that and she says, well that's not quite good enough she says why don't we have them for dinner and i said well what do you mean for dinner i said there's a hundred of them she says no no let's have them for dinner and so it was wow. my wife cheryl's idea uh and and she became very involved with you know she would cook for, it was a three-day affair a day of shopping uh a day of cooking and uh and and then a, a, a day of shopping a day of cooking and then a day of cleaning up uh, uh yeah. and uh, <laughs> if it was if the dinner was on a Monday or Tuesday I was a sous chef on the on the weekend um but uh but Cheryl took it very seriously and uh, and it and it really became a joy for us um uh and meaningful the last uh, the last dinner we had was just before covid hit and uh you know, we had some champagne, and we were all in a bit of tears, and uh, uh, it was uh, very emotional.
0: Wow, it's it's interesting. I you know I, I didn't know your 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 wife's name was Cheryl because when when you said that and you just described uh, you know your experience over those ten years with with your medical students, it made me immediately think of Keith Lillimo's wife, whose name is also Cheryl. And it was interesting to watch. Never mind at the fellowship level, but. At the yeah. the general surgery resident level, she was an absolute dynamic and very important partner of his, and I'm sure continues to yeah. be in Boston. In terms of exactly that, uh, what has your Cheryl meant to your career and and uh, and your life?
2: Yeah, well, uh, that's that's a uh, you know that's a that's a long. Uh, I could spend a lot of time talking about that, but uh, but in in short, just I think as you've described, um, uh, Cheryl and I met. Uh, um, uh, over, we like to, we like to tell the students, because they ask each time at dinner, uh, because they know the story, but they want to hear it, uh, from us, uh, over a bleeding chest tube, uh, when I was in, uh, senior resident cardiac, and, um, she was a cardiac ICU nurse, and, uh, um, and, uh, uh, she, um, you know, we've been married now for, I guess 30, it'll be coming up to 36 years, uh, and, um, uh Cheryl's uh, uh after a fairly short nursing career uh was a stay-at-home mom and uh for the last many many years has taken that part that job of hers extraordinarily seriously as well as the job of working you know assisting me and and uh, being a partner with me in in some of my adventures including the dean's job so uh, Cheryl enjoys some many of the 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 social aspects of uh uh, of, of that are obligate for a dean, and she's taken those very seriously and helped me through all of those. So, uh, so it's been terrific, and um, uh, we've enjoyed uh, we've enjoyed working together on on many things for many years.
0: That's that's amazing. It's uh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's always so impressive from the outside to see dynamic couples like that that, that can work together so well. In addition to. To being together, you know, you've touched on it a little bit, uh, and I think we've kind of mentioned it a little bit. But you're you're really synonymous, your name and you, uh, with medical education in Canada, and particularly surgical education. And just before we got on on uh, on the line formally, I was just telling you. you know a story about um, uh, a very prominent American surgeon who who uh, would refer to you as the Richard Resnick, as in you know who the <laughs> Richard Resnick is. And I always thought that was really high, high, uh, high, and subtle praise. Um, just curious, how did you get into the medical education business, yeah. so to speak? What, what what drew you into that? So, you know, you would hope
2: that it was well thought out and. Uh, and and well designed and uh but uh, you know like most things in life it, it's really a bit of circumstance and uh and in some ways luck and uh, uh being in the right place at the right time but the story was that i had finished my general surgical training um uh and i actually uh, uh went uh as soon as i finished general surgical training i wasn't 100% sure what was next uh and a friend of mine who i had, he was a fellow and i was a resident had become a staff surgeon at a community uh hospital in toronto um and they had one surgeon had died and another surgeon was sick and they were down and he was desperate for help, and asked if I could come for six months as a placeholder, uh, which I agreed to do, uh, and and loved it. It was fabulous. I mean, just the thrill of actually doing stuff, all the stuff you were taught, and uh, um, and I was th- thought I would stay there for six months, and six months ended up being uh, a little over two years, but. Right early on, I decided I wanted to do academic, be an academic surgeon, and was trying to design design a pathway uh, to achieve that goal. Um, so I thought uh, I had done a, a six month research rotation during my training, which at the time was. Um, uh, not insignificant. And I had a great time uh, in that research train, but I decided that um, uh, uh, the traditional research pathway of uh, laboratory research was going to require uh, many years of dedicated work uh, in the lab, likely at a cellular level. Uh, uh, and I, even though that was of interest to me, I, I didn't think I would be able to sustain an interest in Fundamental biological research for the rest of my career, and so in thinking about other pathways, um, uh, I thought about the idea of becoming a specialist in education, not really knowing what that meant, and went and tested the waters with uh, uh, maybe about half a dozen Toronto surgeons who I, you know, who were my teachers and mentors, a couple of whom had focused. Uh, in their later careers in on surgical education. Um uh John Provan for a uh, name uh, being one name and Zane Cohen another and a few others, uh uh Bernie Langer and, and to a person they said they thought it was a terrific idea. They also didn't know exactly what I meant, uh, or, or what it meant, but the, I got a lot of encouragement. And so, uh, through actually John Provan, uh, he sent me to meet a, a gentleman named Roland Fulce, uh, uh, who was the chair of surgery at a fairly new medical school called Southern Illinois University, um, in uh, Springfield, Illinois, and uh, suggesting that, uh, that school had start, had decided to make medical education, surgical education, its principal academic focus. So I went down there and um, uh, uh, liked what I saw. It was a very exciting environment for medical education, which I can tell you a little bit more about after uh, uh, some of medical education's heroes actually started their careers there. And uh, they offered me a, uh, a fellowship um, and said they would help me apply for what at the time was a uh, $25,000 scholarship from the uh, National Fund for Medical Education in the States. And uh, so this was just about the time when we were getting married. And uh, um, in addition to, uh, I kind of popped another question to my wife uh, in a breakfast room in Kyoto, uh, saying, telling her I had applied. By this time, I was Doing very well as a young surgeon in Toronto at this community center, uh, and, uh, said, uh, you know, I'm thinking about this, and if I, uh, get the scholarship, I, I think I'd like to go. And her answer to me w- was, uh, well, if that's what you want to do, we're moving to Springfield. And, um, so that was the start. Uh, maybe I'll stop there because it's a, I could spend the entire hour telling you about, uh, about that saga, but it was, uh, in short, I got a million dollars worth of education uh, in a year's time, and uh, it was a fabulous experience.
1: It's pretty remarkable that uh, you would pursue that, and and that you got so much encouragement, because I think, you know, now surgical education uh, is a well-respected academic pursuit, but I I don't think it was always like that, and so uh, it's pretty remarkable that you and and many other surgeons in in Toronto recognize that as being an important thing to kind of target
2: yeah you know I mean it's always been or it certainly was at the time the orphan child of our academic tripartite and uh, um, but but I think intrinsically everybody knew and understood of the importance of it but of course where we hadn't focused uh, and what's changed dramatically in the last 30 years is uh, the, the notion that, that the science of, of education and or the scholarship of education is a very bona fide academic pathway. So, yeah, I, I took a bit of a gamble, but uh, as I said, I was uh, uh, encouraged a lot by people who I cared for and, and uh, thought very well of. Um, and, but when, I didn't know what I was going to do for that year. Like when I, when I signed up, I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to join some kindergarten teachers and, in, in in an education school or what it was going to look like. It, it ended up being a very stylized program for, uh, a guinea pig. And, uh, I was their first uh, master student in medical education and I was able to sort of stylize my own program. And it was, uh, it was an incredible experience.
1: You're known for so many things, and I think particularly across Canada, you're very, very well known for your work that you've done with around competency-based medical education. But I think that only represents one of many of your, your achievements. Uh, one of your one of other achievements that I wanted to highlight was introducing the OSCE into the LMCC exams. How did that come about, and how did you come up okay. with that idea?
2: Well, it's a good time to discuss it, uh, because there's actually a petition right now. I think I saw it being signed by over 1,500 students, uh, asking the MCC to do away with the OSCE, um, part or the part two, um, particularly in this year of, uh, turbulence around COVID. Um, uh, so, uh, so the exam is, uh, uh was at the time controversial and continues to be controversial. Um well it was a very interesting story. Um I come back uh, to Toronto as a newly minted quote unquote surgical educator. Uh, and actually had had some Oski experiences when I was in Springfield, Illinois. They had done some of the very first uh, Oskis in North America um, uh, uh, in, in Springfield. Um, so I had had a little bit of experience, and one of uh, my collaborators at the time, when I came back to Toronto, a gentleman named Robert Cohen, who's now in Israel, uh, also had had some experience, and we teamed up a bit to... Think about running some local OSCEs in surgery, um, uh, which we had started. And I then got a visit from uh, a gentleman named Michel Berard, who was the registrar of the Medical Council of Canada. Um, and Michel was in Ottawa. He, he flew down to Toronto and he said he wanted, he asked if I would chair a committee to investigate the feasibility uh, and implementil- impl- implementation of uh, a national OSCE for licensure. So uh, there I was a young surgeon I think I must have been just 2 or 3 years into the my academic practice uh given this opportunity to uh uh lead a national committee to do this and that led to literally a decade of relationship with the Medical Council of Canada. So um it it was great it was uh it, I was very lucky to get that opportunity and it was just by uh, by circumstance that I had had a little bit of experience and not many people had with the OSCEs. Michelle was a, a, by a profession, an obstetrician gynecologist, and I remember him telling me he wanted a surgeon to lead the uh, initiative because he thought it would take a surgical personality and mentality to drive through some of the obstacles that we were going to face. Um, which ended up being, I'd say, true. And uh, not that a an internist couldn't break through obstacles either, but he was convinced it had to be a surgeon. So, uh, so that so that was the start of that story, and it was a great story and uh, a great relationship uh, with the medical council.
0: That's really interesting. <laughs> it's always it's always neat to hear the the genesis of some of these things that those of us who come later through yeah. systems, you know, just it's just sort of the way it is, and it's particularly interesting to think that uh, folks uh, are trying to do away with it now.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, nobody. So the 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 impetus to start uh, performance based testing uh, uh, generated from the fact that we were licensing people based on a paper and pencil test, mm-hmm. and the regulatory authorities who were seeing their complaints weren't about knowledge. Their complaints were about clinical skills right. and, and professionalism and communication. And they said to the council, why aren't you testing that? Right. Uh, you know, why are you just testing uh, that a doctor can fill out the right bubble on a piece of paper? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I remember uh, uh, in the early days of of, of um the uh, uh of the Oski, we would quote osler who said something to the effect of uh to uh to sail the sea uh the educational sea without books is to uh not sail at all and to uh, uh or to sail an uncharted sea but to you know to do medicine without patients is to not sail at all i i'm mm-hmm. not quite the quote but something like yeah. that and um uh, and and so the early days of the OSCE were very very exciting. I mean, it was logistically challenging to, at the time, test. I think it was sixteen hundred graduating students uh, across five time zones and two languages uh, with. Thousands of patients, standardized patients, and thousands of examiners. So it was the logistical challenge, not the conceptual challenge that uh, um, because conceptually the OSCE was sound. Why today, thirty years later, it may not be needed, and the students are right, it may not, is because we profoundly changed the curriculum. There was no such a thing as you know uh, teaching of professionalism, teaching communication skills, even clinical skills teaching back then was in its infancy. So the examination tail wagged the curriculum dog, uh, which was appropriate. And now, 30 years later, all of our medical schools are filled with clinical skills teaching at a high level, uh, as well as clinical skills assessment. So hence the challenge to the uh, to whether we still need the Part 2.
0: You know, c- competency by design um, has gained uh, so much momentum in its rollout across the country, particularly in the surgical subspecialties, that... That you and I uh, uh, live in, and a lot of that, of course, was driven by your your hard work. Um, for our listeners, could you define CBD for uh, for us?
2: Sure. Well, competency by design is the actual, um, almost not quite trademarked, uh, but the Royal College's, if you will, um, moniker uh, of competency based medical education. Um, so, I think it's probably uh appropriate to to think about or define competency-based medical education and uh um uh for me it 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 takes on a very particular meaning uh and um and and the the work that we've done in in cbme uh in my mind uh takes on a a very uh a a very special meaning And, and first and foremost it's to uh, get away from the notion that if you spend a certain amount of time in a particular uh, specialty or jurisdiction, um, that you'll be able to uh, then achieve all of the um, um, uh, all of the elements uh, that are appropriate um, uh, to become a specialist uh, or uh, or whatever the particular curricular design is. Uh, So it does away with the notion that time equals competence. Um, It involves, uh, often for the first time in decades in a particular specialty, having a really hard look at curricula and really paying attention to what's needed uh, in the training of uh, specialists, which change over time. Uh, the the fact is, though, our curricula don't change and they become ossified. Uh, so, to me, a big part of CBME is having that hard look at the curricula, and then, uh, in our case, through a system of uh, milestones and EPAs, uh, I, uh, EPAs being entrustable professional activities, making the criteria for advancing from one stage uh, to another very explicit. Um, uh, important. Uh, uh, an important element is that this implies that there needs to be uh, much greater uh, faculty-resident engagement uh, at a very fundamental level um, and dramatically ramped-up assessment. Um, uh, And then in, in, in our Canadian context, what CBME has also involved is making very explicit something that's been Implicit uh, and sometimes hidden, uh, and that's the that medical education has a cost, uh, and that there's specific costs to uh, to delivering high quality education and making those explicit. And I guess the last thing I would say, because I could again go on for the whole hour about competency based education, is that it changes the dynamic uh, um, tor- more towards uh, uh, resident empowerment. Uh, and puts and resident responsibility. Um, and uh, uh, so, a fundamental element of, uh, uh, of the program is to, uh, uh, if you will, a transfer of power from the, uh, uh, from the teacher to the, uh, to the learner.
1: I think, in some ways, CBME is very counterintuitive, especially for someone who has a background as a surgeon. I think, you know, traditionally. You know surgeons just start as residents, and then somehow magically, at the end of five years, they put in hours and hours and hours and they and they're surgeons and no you know it's hard to actually envision someone challenging that notion in in many ways. I'm curious how you actually came up with this idea or why why you thought of this
0: so so
2: I absolutely didn't think of it uh, think about it um uh so competency based education as a um, as a movement, if you will started in the sometime in the sixties uh with its roots deep in behaviorist theory uh and it 's been used extensively in k to twelve uh aviation uh medicine uh and and many uh sorry in, in aviation and and many other areas of of uh edu- uh, of, uh multiple fields of education so um I like to think about CBME, competency-based medical education, as a fifty-year-old movement that's just taken medicine by storm. Um, uh, in medicine, it's been this been talked about, and there have been sort of experimentation with CBME for oh fifteen to twenty years now. Uh, so I actually started thinking about seriously focusing on CBME when I became chair of surgery in Toronto in 2002, and I decided that one of my goals was going to be trying to do um, uh, launch a major experiment uh, that would look at a different way of training, and of course, at the heart of it is um, the training that you described just before, what some might call the... Uh, um you know learning by osmosis uh because when you are a surgical trainee for a hundred hours a week uh and you were exposed to so much surgery um, um, learning by osmosis was uh, not an uh you know, not impossible and certainly uh a reasonably a reasonably uh appropriate way of approaching surgical training but as we all know, the changes of the last twenty five or thirty years um uh, have dramatically impacted the surgical work week, how we train uh, how long we can uh, our residents can be in the in the workplace appropriately so and with and dramatic decreasing independence in the surgical area so it seemed to me that we were never going back to a 100-hour work week, uh, and what we had to do, and to me what's implicit in CBME, is making the very most of each training hour and changing the framework from uh, certifying at the end uh, by virtue of the fact that someone had spent five or six years uh, at 100 hours a week to making sure that each step uh, along the way was affirmed as competence in in more building block uh, fashion so uh so that was how it how my interest uh, evolved and I decided I wanted to see if we could launch a, a residency program that was rooted in competency based education somewhere in surgery in Toronto and we ended up doing it in the area of orthopedics uh which has been
0: a f- fabulous Successful experiment, Dr. Resnick. I, uh, I'm sure um, you know the rollout of uh, of of, uh, of CBME in Toronto uh, wasn't all roses, particularly in orthopedics. I was curious why you chose orthopedics and how that came about, as well as what some of the hurdles or struggles were in that early time. Well, um, so th- the reason I chose orthopedics was because at the time, both the program
2: director. Um, a, a gentleman named Bill Kramer, uh and the chair of orthopedics, uh Ben Alman, uh, who's now the chair of Duke, um, um, were wildly enthusiastic about uh about the prospect. Um, and at the time I was chair of surgery which had uh ten surgical divisions and um, uh there wasn't that dyad of D- dramatically enthusiastic, uh, dramatic enthusiasts, uh, in any other specialty. Um, so I decided to go with orthopedics because of that fact that, uh, I had a chairman of the department who really wanted to do this, was willing, and Ben was a fundamental stem cell biologist. Um, so it, it wasn't uh, his natural inclination, but he thought it was a Great idea, and and wanted his department, his uh, division, to step forward. And Bill Kramer was at Toronto East General, uh, a very terrific program director. The program was in great shape. They had just gone through an accreditation with a uh, uh, five star review, and. Uh, so, uh, I thought it was a good place to start. Um, um, we had a thought about plastic surgery, who were equally interested, but their chairman uh, moved to uh, California. So, uh, and uh, we thought a few other programs. Anyhow, we settled on orthopedics. I, I don't think it was, there were challenges, but it wasn't a struggle uh, because the orthopedic community in Toronto. Uh, were terrific. Uh, I mean, they were just amazing, Um, especially for a division that had, whose claim to fame over many years had been rooted in, um, call it technical excellence and technical Mm -hmm. innovation. Um, uh, They became uh, enthusiasts. Of course, you know, like any group of, I can't remember how many orthopedic surgeons there were in Toronto, but uh, at least uh, uh, 60 or 70 or maybe more um uh, uh, there were few naysayers um but we went through a fairly rigorous change management process uh which included included a lot of communication uh and and allowing the naysayers to have their say uh and and getting them inside the tent rather than outside the tent uh and working with them. And I would say uh that, that change management process worked very well. Uh, um, uh Ben and uh, Bill and then uh Peter Ferguson and Mark Winousenayan and, and others became uh thought leaders in orthopedics and uh, uh and really um, uh really made it fly.
0: It's amazing that that you had such a keen partner out of the gate, and I'm sure that made all the difference as an example, really, to the rest of the country. There's no doubt. How how do you respond to clinicians, one-off clinicians, maybe, or, or groups that would you know return to you? you? You sort of touched on it a little bit with regard to uh, the impact on the actual individual faculty or staff surgeon. There's too many evaluations. You know, I'm not being paid for this. Sort sort of that negative view of it. How do you frame that?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, so at the end of the day, uh, if we do, so at the end of the day, if we think we can deliver a higher quality of education, uh, I don't think there's much pushback to it's worth it. Um, um, that and, and nobody can challenge the fact that uh, the challenges of modern day surgical teaching are very dramatic compared to what they were 30 years ago. Um, for, for multiple reasons that we've sort of just briefly touched on. So I I think fundamentally there's not much pushback to the notion where there is pushback is just what you say is where am I going to find the time? Um, uh, in some circumstance, in some groups, the issue of compensation, uh, uh, is important and comes up, uh, uh, and, um, and to a certain extent, some people believe that uh, uh, the dramatically ramped up assessment is more of a tick, tick box exercise than uh, a true assessment. And, and to be honest, there's, you know, there's some merit to it if, you, if it's not taken seriously. Uh, but at Queen's, you know, you may know we've decided to roll this out to every single specialty and uh, uh, went on a bit of an experiment at Queen's um, and, there's no question we've done fairly systematic studies of now our faculties belief uh, um, systems in, in CBME. And we've seen dramatic dramatic changes from tremendous skepticism to uh, reluctant acceptance to um, uh, uh, I'd say cel- to cel- celebrating that, uh, that we've uh, been able to achieve it and that it's a better way of training.
1: I think, Fundamentally, Dr. Resnick, one of the paradigm shifts of CBD or CBME is that, kind of what I was alluding to earlier, that it it really forced people to think about surgical education differently. It it, it changed uh, people from thinking about surgery as like this uh, learning by osmosis to envisioning surgery as a series of goals or a series of milestones. How do you think about surgery in that way? Like, do you is it is it really truly possible to break down everything that we need to learn in surgery, both from a technical but also a professional and cognitive uh, uh, domain, uh, into a series of goals and a series of uh, of achievements? How do you think about that?
2: Well, um, so I think, I, so I, I think. Uh, you you're correct that at at its maximum uh this it become it can become if you will deconstructionist to the to the absurd uh and it depends on how creatively you can define the building blocks uh My sense is the Royal college has done a really good job of this by Reconceptualizing the the phases of becoming uh, a, a medical specialist or or a surgeon in our case um, uh, from the you know early uh, uh, transition uh, period which is meant to just be uh, a familiarization uh an initiative over several months to the uh uh to core to core training um, uh and then to um, uh um, transition to discipline uh sorry transition to discipline then core training and then uh transition to specialty uh so i think um uh, that's a good framework to think about it, uh, uh, and that at each major milestone, uh, there's a competency committee that looks at now a portfolio of assessment, uh, that, that really gives you a mosaic of, uh, uh of an individual's capabilities and makes a much more, I'd say, reasoned judgment about the progress. But the other thing that I think that uh, is, is has been uh, achieved with competency based education is we can identify struggles and problems much early on much more early uh, uh which has always been the a big problem in our current system that uh, uh often we find out in 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 later years of training that there's some fundamental problems and they're hard to address then it also changes the concept of uh, assessment from you know, one or two major assessment hurdles to continual assessment, which makes it more formative, which, of course, is what we should be doing. So uh, uh, I don't see it as breaking it down to the minutest parts as as the fundamental element of it. I see it as a, a whole system of change.
0: Dr. Resnick, you, you briefly mentioned um, the the disconnection of the traditional link between length of training um, uh, and really, production. And I, I was curious when the rubber meets the road. How do you how you see or do you see any real changes in the total duration of training um, occurring through um, uh, CBME? Right. So uh, the time invariant uh,
2: aspect of C- uh, CBD or CBME is. Um, Uh, one that people always focus on, uh, but probably is the least important, in my view, of the whole Mm -hmm. element of it, Uh, because um, certainly our experience, uh, uh, the Toronto experience, which is now almost a decade, uh, has been that somewhere around half of the trainees have ended up finishing what used to be a five-year curriculum uh, in four years. Uh, and being eligible to take their fellowships um so that's the data um but um but it it, but it, it wasn't the focus uh focus wasn't to race through um the way the toronto program created its structure it was it enabled uh um accelerated pathways uh but it wasn't the focus um and my sense is, in most rural college specialties, it'll all continue to be some form of hybrid, where it allows for the exceptional situation of someone to advance more quickly, uh, or 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 take more time if they need, um, uh, and it'll allow for that flexibility. Um, but. You try to predict what it normally would take to go through a, perhaps a, either a rotation or a series of experience to meet the uh, competency framework. Uh, and you predict and then you're likely going to get there. One of the general criticisms that I hear all the time is, you know, well, what about the service requirement and how, you know, how, how can you, uh, what are we going to do if someone needs six years or if someone needs, uh, you know, four years? Uh, the reality is in a, in a medical school, uh, you know, we have, uh, in our case, uh, 550 residents. We get bulk bulk uh, transfer of uh, uh, we get transfer of funding, and we have residents coming in and out of the program all the time. There's paternity leave, maternity leave, illness, um, and so it's very easy to be flexible with um, with the timing. And you know, it's my fundamental view that a learner should take as much time as he or she needs to achieve the uh, uh, the skill set, and then we should move them on to the next stage.
1: It's particularly interesting to talk about CBME in the time of COVID where there's been some major disruptions to resident training where residents have either been redeployed or uh, like, for for example, here in Calgary, residents have been asked to stay home uh, unless they're on call, although that's starting to perhaps lighten up here over the last week. How do you see something like CBME adapting to a, a pandemic like COVID or or potentially if we have more crises like this, uh, more pandemics or crises in the future?
2: Right. Well, I think we're all trying to understand how to deal with uh, the pandemic situation. I guess the the first thing I would express is a very fundamental philosophical view that uh, uh, there's only one place our residents should be during this crisis, and that's in the hospital. Uh, um, I'm saddened to hear that Calgary's made a decision to uh, uh suggest that that's not their place um, uh maybe I'm misinterpreting what you just said um but uh and it, and so too, with our medical students, I tried to keep our medical students in the workplace as long as I could, obviously with safety front of mind for them and the patients and and everyone, but this is a once in a generation a learning experience for all of us, uh, including our learners. Uh, my own view is as soon as you take an oath to, uh, become a, uh, enter medical school, um, uh, you understand that you are, there are some, you know, our profession, like, uh, many professions have some inherent risks. Um, and so I think the place for all of our learners right now is in the hospital. Uh, uh and it's up to us to be smart about it and structure it uh you know uh in a safe way so of course you wouldn't send a, a novice medical student to to work on a covid ward uh but there's all kinds of ways our students can make contributions and our residents uh to the system um and everybody should be actively engaged in uh in helping out here
0: Dr. Resnick, you, you recently published a, a paper in the journal Surgery that outlines um you know many of the principles and the and the process in terms of um delivering CBD uh, across the country. And I would encourage anybody uh, uh who's who's listening um to look to look that up because it's it's a great document. I, I think we'd just love to close with you uh, you know, first of all, I'm thanking you again for your incredibly valuable time, but also asking a more broad question, which is for the for the surgical trainee ie resident uh, who's interested in a, in a career in surgical education, how would you best advise them to, to do that um, part one to pursue that and part two is do you have any closing comments or thoughts at a 30,000 foot level for residents um, in terms of their ne- uh, necessary school, skill acquisition in the context of CBD
2: um well I'll take the first question first. Um uh and I I've had the uh, uh the privilege of spending hundreds of hours with probably hundreds of residents uh and fellows over the years who are thinking about uh surgical education as a career pathway and uh, um and obviously, uh, um, uh, for me, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm a, an unabashed enthusiast uh, and, and apologist for the fact that one of the fundamental things we do in in our academic world is uh, the responsibility of uh, uh, teaching and training the next generation, and we should be doing it in it in it. We should be doing it in a scholarly way as we can, and there are. Uh, there are a multitude of things that uh, that we can do better. Um, so I think it's a terrific pathway uh, for those who are interested. Like most pathways getting some formal training uh, in the area, uh, to me, is a sine qua non. Um, uh, there are many, many programs now uh, leading to expertise in uh, medical or surgical education, and uh, uh, and, the, and virtually every school also has a faculty of education. Uh, so there's lots of ways of accomplishing the skill set um and um and it's a wonderful wonderful way of blending a clinical career and, and an academic career uh through that focus um so uh, uh, i did it at a time when uh, not many others had uh, had uh, contemplated that route uh, but it's so heartening to see uh, so many of our young uh, uh trainees now embracing uh, uh, medical education as a uh, as a career pathway um uh your last question about um c v d at thirty thousand feet if i'm understanding it correctly
0: yeah you bet
2: yeah um uh well i think training with, training is evolving uh um and you know when i think back uh you know my thesis project in nineteen eighty five uh uh was a uh this would have been nineteen sorry nineteen eighty 1984, uh, was a randomized trial of, uh, sleep deprivation and surgical performance. Um, it was, this was actually before the Libby Zion case, which was in 84. Uh, so I didn't know we were about to, uh, enter into a, a dramatic change in, in work hours. Um, uh, but, uh, what we've seen in the last 30 years is a fundamental change uh, to, uh, to the way we teach surgery. Um, and so with that fundamental change, what we've tried to do in the last 20 years to react is skirt around the edges as opposed to really cut to the center of what, uh, the problem is. And to me at that very core is making the, making the most of every last training moment, uh, and making sure that we make, every single moment the very best we can uh and making sure that our our trainees are accomplishing uh the goals that we've set out for them uh which in- involves uh um much more uh, comprehensive assessment so i'm confident that the next generations of surgeons are, like we have only one dream right you you do chad i do uh and that's that the next generation of surgeons can't be just as good as you are uh they can't if they're just as good as you are will have failed Uh, they need to be better
0: yeah there's Um, no no doubt
2: there's no doubt and uh, so that's our dream and that's why I've dedicated the last 30 years to that dream
1: you've been listening to Cold Steel the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery if you've liked what you've been listening to please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.